Testament scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 119. We're reading a portion of that psalm. The psalm has 167 verses, and in almost every one of those verses, the psalmist expresses his affection for God's words or his desire to obey them. Hear now the inspired testimony. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. And then our gospel reading from Luke. In this well-known parable, Jesus makes a contrast. A contrast with those who, like the psalmist that we just read, obey his words and those who do not. Verse 46, Jesus asks, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately fell, and the ruin of that house was great. These are the words of our Lord Jesus. Thanks be to God. We've been studying Paul's little letter to the church at Colossae during this summer, and most of you probably, hopefully, had the opportunity to come and go. And uh, just a quick reminder of what's going on in this letter. Uh, This is a letter, it seems, that Paul was writing, not to a church that he had planted, but rather to one that was a kind of grandchild of his, uh, probably uh, a child of the Ephesian church. Uh, He has heard about this church from the church planter, a man named Epaphras, who was visiting Paul, who was in prison and writing from prison, and possibly uh, at this time Epaphras was also a fellow prisoner. We know from another of Paul's letters that Epaphras did serve some time with Paul as prisoner. So Epaphras has brought him good news of good things in the church, but a deep concern because teachers have arrived in Colossae 
who have taught that in addition to the gospel of Christ and in addition to Christ himself, more is needed to have a rich and full life in the spirit. And uh, we've looked, I won't go back through that, but the whole aim of the letter is to show the supremacy of Christ and in showing his supremacy, to show the full sufficiency of Christ, that Christ is our life, as Paul puts it at the beginning of chapter three. Chapter three, he begins to take all this rich doctrine that we've studied and uh, brings it home to us. He begins chapter three by saying, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on earth, for you have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And as we saw, when he begins to tell us what it means to set our mind on heavenly things rather than earthly, and we go, goodness, does that mean I'm supposed to sit around all day and think about heaven and I can't think about, you know, the things I really love? No, he shows us that the, the heavenly things are essentially summarized by his saying what he tells us what to put on, and above all these, put on love, which binds all these things together. The heavenly things are the things of God, the way that God created us to live in fellowship with one another, in loving relationship with one another for the glory of God and for the good of this poor broken world. And that's what it is to be heavenly minded, and to be earthly minded is all the stuff he tells us to throw off. It's to be obsessed with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life. So we've been through all that, I won't again. We came toward the end of that part of chapter three and Paul said, okay, do this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your, in your heart, which is your mind. Uh, let his peace umpire, the word there as we saw is umpire, when we have all these conflicting thoughts and desires pulling and tugging, he said, let the shalom, this full, rich knowledge of being united with Christ, let that peace rule and umpire and help you make good decisions let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that you can teach and admonish one another, even in the way that you sing and speak to one another. And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which as we saw means doing it in accordance with his will as those emissaries who've been sent in his name. So those three things, the peace of Christ rule, the word of Christ dwelling in us and filling us, and then whatever we do in word or deed, doing it in the name of the Lord for his honor and glory. Well, again, we have to ask, oh, what does that look like? Can you bring it down to home, Paul? Practically speaking, what does it look like to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? And so I'm gonna take a bunch of verses that ordinarily we wouldn't put together, but it's because I think that Paul is illustrating here as he does in a number of his letters, more fully and richly in Ephesians uh, as he tells us what it means to do things, to act in the name of the Lord Jesus, and what it means to speak in the name of the Lord Jesus, okay? 
so I'm actually going to read it. Uh, we're going to begin, and this is going to, any of you who are not longtime church people, this is going to really start out sounding wrong to you and offensive. It is really countercultural. So get ready. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants read slaves. Bond servants were not people you hired, they were people that you owned. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, for there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, maybe. I think I heard more men than women on that. But just you wait, guys. Okay, what, what's going on here? Um, I would suggest that there are two equal and opposite, er well, they're not equal and opposite, but two, two dangers whenever we come to Paul's application of the gospel to his culture. When he says, therefore, based on what Christ has done for you, based on what Christ has made of you. Now this is how you're to live. This is what you're to do. This is how you're to speak. One is the typical one, not only in America, but in the church in America, which is to say, well, Paul's just wrong about that. No, no. You'll never understand God's word if you take that approach and you're going to miss the riches. You can't kind of pick and choose and say, well, I love the doctrine but uh, I don't care about his application. The other, and this may get me in trouble with some of you, but you know, I'm 75 years old, I don't care. Um, <laughs> the other mistake is just this, and that's taking one-to-one -one correlation of every application that Paul makes and say, okay, Paul said it, it's God's word, I believe it, I need to now do exactly that in my cultural setting. And I want to explain to you why I think it's crucial for us to read with greater care and greater wisdom. John Walton has said this and received a lot of praise and a lot of attacks for it, but I think he's right. He said, when we study the Bible, we have to remember that although by God's grace the Bible was written for us and is God's word to us, 
The Bible was not written to us. The Bible was written in particular moments in history by particular people in their cultural setting, speaking languages that we don't speak, inhabiting a culture or cultures that we do not now inhabit, and applying the word of God correctly to those particular cultural settings. And that means that sometimes you and I are challenged to understand how to apply this glorious gospel to our cultural settings, guided by the apostles as they applied it to theirs. And I will just give two illustrations to try to make our point. When we go to the Old Testament and God sends his people into the land to take the land, if you've any sense of, of decency, you're horrified by some of the things that they did. I mean, Psalm 137, final verse. You're reading it. By the waters of Babylon, there we hung our harps. Our captors have desired of us the song, sing for us the songs of Zion. How can I sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And all you're reading it so beautiful. And then they say, blessed is the one who gets you back, you Babylonians. Blessed is the one who smashes your children's head on the rocks. And you go, what? But all throughout the Psalms, the Lord lets us cry out from the heart. I mean, the psalmist will say, where are you? Are you, you know, have you left me? Have you abandoned me? Do you no longer keep your promises? God lets us be honest with him. But it's a different cultural setting. The Israelites waged war according to their culture. And we are horrified today when some Islamic groups wage war the way that ancient people waged it. We're horrified because we're modern people. Moses would not have been horrified because that's how ancient people waged war and they are an ancient culture living in a modern world. And it horrifies us and should because the gospel has been working its way through the centuries to change how we see everything, including war. There would never be Geneva Conventions if it weren't for the gospel, that it worked its way through cultures. So that, that's one point. Another illustration is what we'll come to in a moment. Paul did not say, masters, free your slaves. Slavery is, is terrible. No one should own another person created in God's image. He's writing into a world where anybody who could afford them owns slaves. And up until just a few hundred years ago, that was true of the entire world. And so my father's two grandparents, two grandfathers, not great-grandfathers, my father's grandfathers were Confederate officers who owned slaves. And one of them was a Presbyterian pastor who was known as an incredibly godly man. But they owned slaves, which I find incomprehensible. But Paul is writing into a world like that. And so I want to suggest first that whenever we go to Paul's applications of the word, we understand that he's writing into a very different culture. And so we come to the first one and we say, why doesn't he at least call on husbands first and on parents first and on masters first and at least 
put them on notice with the word before he goes to the weaker party. And the reason, I think, is this. In the early church, it was women and children and slaves who came in great number to the Gospels because they had no rights and privileges. They responded to the word. The early churches were filled with women and children and slaves. And Paul is wise and he knows that if they do not live in such a way that brings honor and glory, if suddenly husbands and fathers and masters think that the gospel is out there fomenting revolution, it will be stopped in a moment. And so Paul, writing into his world, starts with those that, are, that he knows are going to be filling the pews. And he says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. You're hearing from the gospel that you are now free in Christ and that you have dignity and you have value. It's easy for us in reading this to totally forget the setting. We hear so much about Roman law and how liberating it was. It was only liberating for men who were Roman citizens. The only people with rights in the Roman Empire were men who were Roman citizens, like Paul. That's why Paul could not be crucified. He had to be, have his head cut off because he was a Roman citizen. A Roman father was master of his house. He had the right of life and death over his wife and his children. If she displeased him, he could kill her. She had no rights. She was chattel. You read the great Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle, and he says women, children, slaves are tool to be used, property. Now that is the world into which Paul is writing. And so he starts by saying, you Christian women, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. You know, let, Peter says beautifully, win them without a word. Just, you know, live in a way before them that they will not be horrified by this new faith that you have, but they will see a transformation that you are now the person they dreamed of. And then he turns to the men and says something unprecedented in first century literature. Husbands, love your wives. <laughs> they didn't think they had to love them. He says it even more fully and beautifully in Ephesians where he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, Christ laid aside his glory what does it look like to be head of, when men, men say, I want my family to be biblical with male headship, and I always say, amen, brother, you should want that. You want to know what it looks like? Go to John 13, where Jesus, having loved his own, loved them to the end, took off his robes, put a towel around his waist, got on his knees, and began to wash their feet, which was the one job that you could not make a Jewish slave do. It was too demeaning. And that's why Peter said, no, you're not going to do that to me. It's, I can't bear, I don't want to live in a world where my Lord, my Messiah, would wash my feet. That's what headship looks like in the kingdom of God. And so this is another astonishing, and I'll 
I know time's a waste and I'll get off it in a minute, but I think this is so important because people who really believe the word of God need to read it rightly. You've, you've, well, let me go on, okay. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. And then parents and children. Again, children were just owned until, unless they were boys and when they became men. Then, if they were Roman citizens, they could become citizens, as Paul had. But he says, obey your parents, for this is right. And then he says, fathers, be good to your kids. <laughs> Love your kids. There's, there's nothing, okay, I'll go back to the other. If anybody ever says to you, I like Jesus, but I don't like Paul because he was anti-women and anti-this and anti-that. Take them to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and explain to them about the situation that men owned their wives. Women had no rights. Paul begins Romans 7 by telling, saying, women, your bodies aren't your own. They belong to your husband. We can see all the women you know, so don't keep yourself from your husband. And then he says, husbands, your bodies are not your own. They belong to your wife. You will find nothing remotely like that in any first century literature because nobody believed that. No husband believed that his body belonged to his wife. He could do what he wanted. He was the master. And so you see how in its day, the gospel was already beginning to turn things around and bring people together to the point where it would do the work that it's done now, where people realize that, you know what? You and I are both made in God's image, and God's image is incomplete in humanity without man and woman. And whatever your view on how those two fit and what the roles are, and Christians disagree, the key is that there's never in a Christian home, in, in a culture where women are educated and free and don't belong to you, there's no place for a guy who tries to pull out the Bible verse to tell her, you have to do exactly what I say, and if you disobey me, you're disobeying God. You don't own her anymore, brother, because the gospel has given freedom to all of his people. And the beauty is that as you lay down your lives for each other, as a man plays the role of the man in all the unique ways that God has made men, and is that man for his woman, and is that father to his children, a protector and a defender and a supporter and an encourager, as we play that, it changes the whole dynamic of the family. And there's nothing that will push your children further from the Lord than if they see a strutting little potentate trying to use the Bible to prop himself up. And wives, if you've got a husband who is broken or doesn't love the Lord, let me tell you, there are worse ways to win him than by no longer fighting with him and striving for supremacy and all of the rest. You go to the scripture and say, I want to respond to this guy the way that the church is supposed to respond to Christ.
Christ. And over and over again, godly women have been the agent of their husband's heart being broken and of them being drawn to faith. It is two people laying down their lives for one another. It is parents loving their children as the Lord has loved us. And I know as a parent and grandchild, man, it's a challenge. Uh, I've told you before, my consolation is this. There's only one perfect father and his family's a mess, okay? So if being a perfect father made children perfect, the church would be perfect. But love them well. You cannot, cannot fail if you love them well. And then masters and slaves. That was part of the household back there. But just apply it to the workplace. He says to these slaves, you know, be good workers and don't just do it because he's watching you. Do it as unto the Lord. As an employee, are you the kind of employee that your boss wishes he had a hundred of? That's the best witness you can give. I think I've told you this before, but years and years ago during the, the Jim Baker mess when PTL was all in the news, I was flying through Charlotte, landed in the airport, and the Charlotte Observer had, had uh, those huge, uh, uh, whatever you call it, you know, the headlines um, saying, you know, Baker finally, they busted Baker, they had him. And I thought, oh boy, this is so bad for the church. Um, you know, anybody who thinks that's what a Christian is. Or... So I get on the plane, and I've got two business women behind me, and I can hear and they're going, did you see that thing about Baker? Ah, I just, that's what Christians are like. They're all a bunch of fakes. I'm thinking this is going from bad to worse. They're laughing about it. And then one of them said to the other one, has Mary taken you out to lunch and tried to tell you about Jesus? She said, oh, yeah, she has. I thought this is just horrible. And then one of them said, you know, I've got to say this. She is our best worker. Anything that I give her, She's the first one back with it, ready to take more. She's the one person there that I really always know I can trust. And when so-and-so was in trouble, she was the one who went over to help her. So I guess, I guess I can't say much. And she said, well, what would she say about Jim Baker? She said, well, I asked her. And she said, my faith isn't in Jim Baker. My faith is in Jesus. Oh, that's a pretty good answer. Then they went back to their work. And I thought, Mary will never know that her quiet testimony, she probably would go home at night and think, why do I do this? They all think I'm a Bible banger and, you know, you know, not getting. But in the moment of crisis, when the, the big public Christians had failed, it was her quiet testimony at work, being their best worker, being compassionate, loving well, that had stemmed the tide and turned them back. And do that. Do that. That's what he puts us in all these different places to do and to be. And if you're a boss, well, love your people the way that Christ has loved us. You know my favorite Tim Keller story of the woman who kept showing up down front and Tim said he finally went down to meet her and said, yeah, I don't recognize you. And she said, oh, I'm, she's a businesswoman right close to the top of one of the big New York firms. And he said, uh, so, you know, what brought you to, C to Cedar Springs? I started saying, what brought you to Redeemer? And she said, I was right up toward the top, and I made an egregious error, not 
ethical or anything else. I had to make a choice, and I made the wrong choice. It cost the company so much, and I knew it was probably going to be the end of my career. And so she said, I kept waiting and waiting and waiting, and nothing ever happened. Nobody ever called me, and nobody talked to me about it. And she said, I finally went to a trusted friend and said, you know, this is what happened. I don't know why they, you know. And her friend said, oh, don't you know what happened? She said, no. She said, oh, your boss took the fall for you. She said, what? So she went up to see him and said, you know, wh what happened? And, and he just said, oh, don't worry about it. You know, you're a great worker. Anybody could have made the mistake. But, you know, I'm a partner, so what were they going to do? So I, I didn't want to lose you. you. What was that? She said, no. Shut the door, sat down. She said, something else is going on. And he said, she said, I've had bosses who've taken credit for my work, and I have had bosses who have blamed me for their mistakes, but I've never had a boss that did something like this. Why did you? And he said, because somebody took the fall for me. And he told her about Jesus. And what was so powerful is that he, he didn't call her in and say, I want you to know what I did for you, and here you know, is a book by Tim Keller I want you to read. He just, he just did it. Who, who knows how many other people he had done things like that for. But in her moment of great need, she went to him and he told her. And she said, I asked him, where do you go to church? <laughs> Redeemer, she said, that's why I'm here. Brothers and sisters, what Paul is saying in his culture and the Holy Spirit is saying to every one of us is that whether you're a husband or a wife, a parent or a child, a boss or a worker, God has put us where he has put us that we might be his ambassador of reconciliation, Christ making his appeal through us. Why you're there for your husband's salvation and sanctification? Boy, was I there for my wife's sanctification, poor woman. Um, we're there for each other to love well, whichever it is. Okay, quickly. Why did I add the final verses? He says, whatever you do in word or deed. What about word? He shows us in these verses that there should be a new way that we talk to God about people and a new way that we talk to people about God. And I promise I will just finish this in a few sentences. When it comes to how we talk to God about people, Paul is never, Paul's in prison. And he says, pray also for me. What does he pray? He says that a door may be opened. Boy, if I were in prison, that's what I'd be asking. Pray that a door may be opened out of this prison. <laughs> but he says, no, pray that a door might be opened for witness. Pray that I might be able to make the word clear as I ought to make it. This verse is precious to me because the Sunday that I was ordained up in Boston and preached that morning, this we were studying through Colossians, and that was my text. Pray also for me that a door may be opened and that I may make it clear as I ought to make it. That was Paul's prayer. And I tend to, you know, I tend to weary heaven and earth with the same things, family things usually. Lord, you know, you haven't quite fixed this yet. I know you're busy, but we could use a little help on this one. Um, now we can bring everything to the Lord. But the prayers in the Bible were prayers for the advance of the kingdom of God. 
for our hearts and our minds to be open, to be given wisdom, to be given love that surpasses knowledge. And that's how Paul is praying. When you talk to God for people, don't just pray about their knee surgery upcoming. Pray that they will go deep in the things of God, okay? And then finally, talking to people about God, he says that, that our words may be gracious and seasoned with salt. Man, some of the church councils I've been in, we needed to hear that big time, that our words to each other as Christian leaders, as brothers, might be seasoned with salt. Always in the scripture we come back to the same thing. Christ redeemed us in order that we might love God and love each other. The law of God is simply a series of pictures that shows us what that looks like. What does it look like to love God? Well, don't have other gods. Don't have idols. Don't take his name in vain. Keep his day holy. What does it look like to love each other? We'll start with your parents. Honor them. They may not be honorable, but honor them anyway. They were God's agents in saving you. You want to love your neighbor? Well, don't take his life or his wife or his stuff or his reputation. And don't sit over there in your house looking across, wishing that everything that was, that's his was yours. That's how you start. It's a call to love. And he's given us his spirit. And so if you are sorry for your sins and are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, the Lord has set this table for you if you've been baptized into Christ. And he invites you to come not because you're strong, but because you're weak. Not because you're good, but because you are in need of God's goodness and grace. He invites you to come because you love the Lord a little and you long to love him more. He calls you to come because he loves you and gave himself for you.